Good morning. So uh, we are beginning Advent today, and if you would like to follow along in a paper Bible, then uh, we have some ushers in the back who, if you indicate that you want one, they will ush them to you. So uh, if you'd like one, let them know, and you can follow right along with us. So today we're going to begin in Luke chapter 2. We're going to read from Luke 2 and from John 14. So let's begin in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Then verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And in John fourteen twenty seven, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I have it on good authority, which is to say my wife, that there is a, a common fantasy among many mothers of young children. Now, I don't know if this is true or not. You can uh, confirm or deny. Um, she says, it would be great to get injured. Like, like not too bad, but bad enough that it would warrant a week in the hospital. <laughs> And in that week in the hospital, people would feed me and people would rub lotion into my feet and the constant chorus of mommy, 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 mommy would cease. Now, not forever, not just, but just, just for a week. And it would be marvelous. There would be rest and there would be peace. She can't do the laundry. She can't cook. She can't clean. Because she's in the hospital, everybody understands, free pass, no problem, all is well. And in that way, sickness would be better than health. Yes? Yeah, does, is this a thing among young mothers? Okay, 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 just making sure. Now, I, don't, I can't relate to it in that way, but I, I could, as she was telling me this, relate to it in another way. Like, I, I don't have to deal with little kids day in and day out. Um, I do when I come home, and I, I love them very much. Uh, but when I go to work every day, I have responsibilities, and they're always calling at me, and I'm always behind on something. And, and I felt like, oh, that would, gosh, that would be nice just to be in the hospital for like a week. And it's like, man, I, I would love to teach that class, but hospital, yeah, I would... I would love to be able to deliver on those things, but I can't. Hospital, I would love to catch up on my grading, but I can't because I'm in the hospital and everybody would understand. Oh, <laughs> Whew, man, that, that sounds very good. Now, the truth is nobody actually wants to be in the hospital. I mean, to actually have that fantasy fulfilled would not be nearly as restful and exciting and lovely and peaceful as we would want it to be. Um, people would always be coming in, disturbing our sleep. The air is dry. It smells, you know, it would not be as good as we want it 
to be. But still, still we find ourselves longing for that sickness that is better than health. And that's the theme of this Advent series. The sickness created by Advent is better than any cure that we can find. In the season of Advent, we celebrate this sickness. We seek to inhabit this sickness. We proclaim that we refuse to be cured because the sickness itself is better than any cure that is offered to us. And the sickness that I'm talking about is longing. Proverbs tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And the sickness that we celebrate here is hope. When you hope for something, you long for it with all your being, and your hope isn't realized, you feel sick. The heart grows sick with unfulfilled desire. But what we're going to try to do in this series is to help you see this Advent is that when we, when we celebrate the arrival of our Lord, both the first arrival and the anticipation of the second arrival and the second Advent, we are meant to be left with this sickness of longing. That's the point. And if you find yourself at the end of the season, after all of your frantic anticipation and arrangement to make this the peaceful season you hope and, hope and long that it would be, and you find yourself exhausted and let down and disappointed, well then, you did it right. <laughs> That's the point. You did it absolutely right. The disappointment is not a sign of failure. It's a sign that the season did its proper work in you. So each week this Advent, we're going to consider one longing that we have for Christmas time and how we are right to ache for its fulfillment during this season. Now this week, we're going to consider our longing for peace and rest. I mean, walk around any display of Christmas decorations, we see placards all over that say, peace. How we long for peace and rest during the season. And after it's over, most of us fall over sick or asleep because we work so hard for rest. And one year, one more year, it's, it has slipped through our fingers yet again. Maybe you already have plans for this season. Me and my family will have peace this You're right to laugh. Yes, you're right to Because spoiler alert, no, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> and it is precisely the failure to enter fully into that peace and rest, which, which you so desperately long for, which tells you that you're doing it right. So in order to explain what I mean by that, I like to look under three different headings on these texts that we just read. Number one, we'll, we'll consider the promise of peace. Number two, the failure of peace. And number three, the fulfillment of peace. The promise of peace, the failure of peace, and the fulfillment of peace. So let's begin with the promise of peace. If you were to dig a hole and you were to find a gold coin in that hole, the, the least likely thing you are to do is to walk away with this contented satisfaction, oh, look at that, a gold coin, and just walk away. No, the, the most logical thing to do is to take a shovel and keep digging because if there's one, maybe there's more. 
And so when the voices of the angels tear through the night sky above all those slumbering shepherds and cry out the good news of Christ's birth, and they say, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That word, peace, that is a gold coin. And if we keep digging in the scriptures, we will find a hoard of treasure. We also see it in our text from John 14. Jesus says, peace I, I give to you. Peace, excuse me, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. The Christ was born to bring peace to his people. And he promised in no uncertain terms that for those who belong to him, his peace is our possession. So let's look at that first word out of his mouth. Peace, peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. This doesn't come out of the blue. When Jesus talks about peace, he's pulling on a long thread that goes all the way through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And namely, it is the concept of shalom. That's the Hebrew word for it. We talk a lot about shalom here. Its literal translation in English is peace, but the concept is far richer than the word implies. Now listen to this. Okay, here's what it, here's what it implies. Shalom describes the world at rest, our world as it's supposed to be. It's a world without foolishness, without envy, without deceit without rejection, without criminals, without shame, without crookedness of any kind. Shalom describes a humanity that is no longer alienated from God, but a humanity that glorifies God and enjoys him forever. It is a world without sin. It is a world without death. It is a world without judgment. It's the way things ought to be. That is what, Jesus, that is, what is underneath that word peace, when Jesus speaks it, my, my peace, I give, my shalom, I give to you. Let me try to say it another way. In the second century, uh, one of the early church fathers named Irenaeus uh, described shalom this way. He says, the days will come in which the vines shall grow, each having 10,000 branches, and in each branch 10,000 twigs, and in each true twig 10,000 shoots, and in each one of the shoots 10,000 clusters, and on every one of the clusters 10,000 grapes, and every grape, when pressed, will give five and twenty measures of wine. And when one of the saints shall lay hold of a cluster, another shall cry out, I am a better cluster, take me, bless the Lord through me. There is no scarcity in shalom. It is utter abundance between friends and family, the entire creation, and most importantly, humanity at peace with God most high. When Jesus says, my peace I give to you, this is what he has in mind. I give you shalom. I give you the way the world ought to be. You know, I mean, this, this shouldn't sound foreign to any of us because we all yearn for this. This is something that's resident in each of us, no matter what you believe. We all long for it. All of us have this distant longing inside of us for our world and our relationships and an intimacy with God as it ought to be because that is what we were made for. 
In the beginning, God created all things, including Adam and Eve. And he looked at it and he pronounced a benediction. It is good. It is good. It is very good. Shalom ruled in the created order. But then, of course, the fall occurred. We're used to thinking of the fall in terms of sin and rebellion, and that's true. That there's nothing that's absolutely right. But there's far more to it than that. Cornelius Plantinga, who wrote a book on this, he calls the fall a vandalism of shalom. If the world is not the way it's supposed to be, if our intimacy with God and each other is cracked and wrecked, if our love with one another is is utterly self-referenced, it's because we have vandalized shalom. And we feel that effect of the vandalism everywhere, in every relationship, around every corner. We feel it. All of us know we ought to live in a world where every time you get pregnant, you have a healthy baby. All of us know deep down that we ought to live in a world where you are always rewarded for honest risks. All of us know that we ought to live in a world where marital intimacy deepens and warms over time instead of cooling off and hardening. All of us knows that we ought to live in a world where it is our joy to hold communion with God, to delight to meditate upon his word. It is our great privilege to walk in obedience to his commands. But in the same way that looters vandalize a store and render it unusable to the general public, we have rebelled and looted our own souls, our relationships, and have so vandalized that concept of shalom it has become almost unrecognizable from the way things were created. And we did this. Here's the kicker. We did this all in the name of freedom and independence and the right to arrange for our own peace. But we only knew what we stood to lose once we lost it, once we had cast it away. And we stand day after day, after day on the shore, weeping, hoping that the tide will bring it back. But it never does. But God created us for communion with himself, for shalom. And his creation, the Psalms tell us, is precious in his sight. And so he sent his servant Isaiah to his people, a people writhing under the effects of the vandalized shalom, And he said, despite your utter persistence to reject me, I will come to you. And he says this in Isaiah chapter 9. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and under, over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God himself grieved over the state of his creation, angry with the vandalism that we had committed 
knew there was no way out for us. And so he promised that he himself would come in order to bring us out of it himself by his own zeal, for the sake of his own name and his own glory. He himself would come to make a way out, to bring us back into the shalom that we lost. He would send a son and his name would be Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his shalom, there would be no end. And so that's why it should reduce us to a pile of rapture when we see in Luke chapter 2 the angels come into the night sky and announce in Luke 2, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. In the birth of Jesus Christ, shalom has returned to earth, concentrated in its most potent form in a man who is also God. And so years later, the night before his execution, when he said to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, what he meant was, it's beginning in me, in my person, in my work, in my presence. The great vandalism of shalom is being reversed in me. I am making all things new. And by the way, I'm giving it to you. That's the promise of peace. Now let's talk about the failure of peace. Here's the great conundrum in all of this. Christ came to give us peace, like a real sense that all is well between us, between all of our relationships, between us and the world. But if you've ever lived through an Advent season, for example, uh, you know that you do not possess this peace. At least, I mean, at least not in full. That's because we're not content, we're not that content to live on the peace that Christ has given us. Like he, unless he is a liar, that peace belongs to all who belong to him. But we're not content to live on it. So we work furiously to arrange external peace in the image of the world that we live in. And that brings us to the next thing that Christ promises in John chapter 14. He says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And then he says, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Now, how is it that the world gives us peace? That's the question I ask when he says this. How is it that the world tries to deliver peace to us? Well, think of the Romans, as one does. They, they established... <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a history teacher. What are you going to do, you know? Um, they, they established one of the most lasting and famous eras of peace that we've ever known. It was called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And how did they establish it? Well, you walk down any of their major streets and you look to the left and you look to the right and they were lined for hundreds of yards with crosses, execution instruments for criminals, they were relentlessly expansionistic. They killed their enemies. They burned cities to the ground. The way that they established peace was by violence and conquest. And that's actually not all that 
entirely much different from how we, in our world, seek to establish our peace. Now, we don't go out with the sword, but we do go to conquer uh, the barbaric and disordered world with our dollars and with our calendaring. We try, but the point is that the peace that the world gives is always outside in. The peace that the world gives is always outside in. The peace that the world gives is always circumstantial and temporary. It's circumstantial because like the Romans, worldly peace can only reign so long as we possess enough power to keep it upheld. Um, Eventually, though, we always run out of power. The Roman Empire, as you might know, fell in the 5th century to invading barbarians. The peace that the world offers is circumstantial and temporary. And isn't it true that somewhere deep down, we believe that if we could just arrange the circumstances of this season right this time, if we could just put the puzzle pieces in the right order, we could somehow find ourselves entering into peace. All is well. And you know what? Let let me be honest. If by some miracle you can fit all the pieces together and untangle that knot that you've been trying all your life to untangle, it's certainly possible to have some measure of peace. You can do it. But here's the promise I have for you. It will fall apart. If the Romans, with their massive empire and exceedingly magnificent bureaucracy and army could not withstand the invading barbarians, neither will your peace. That's the nature of worldly peace. But I have good news. Christ has promised us, not as the world gives do I give peace to you. He doesn't do it that way. So then, let's move to our third point, the fulfillment of peace. Now listen, listen to this. The peace that Christ promised did not exempt him from suffering. The the peace that Christ possessed did not exempt him from suffering. The peace that Christ possessed provided him with a haven of rest when his suffering came. Even for the Prince of Peace, the one who was Shalom incarnate, even for him, his world was not as it should be. The children of Israel should have welcomed him with open arms, but instead they stiffened their necks and they rejected him. The the disciples should have stayed awake with him and watched with him in the garden, but they, they grew tired and they fell asleep and they left him alone. So there is a great mystery at work here. Christ has given us his peace, but all things are not yet at peace. So then what is the nature of this peace that Christ gives? Well, Paul tells us, the apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. Now listen, Romans 5 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, 
we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now notice what he says. We are justified by faith, which is to say our sins have been forgiven by our belief in the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our Father accept us, accepts us not on the basis of our own good works, but on the basis of the good works of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that way, in that way, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And because of his death and his resurrection as our substitute, because he now dwells in us by his Holy Spirit, the same peace that he possessed is available to us. And it is a peace that cannot be shaken because it is rooted not in our external circumstances, but in what Christ has done for us in his atoning death, and there can be no change in that. Nothing can be taken from it. Nothing can be added to it. It is strong, and it can never be changed. But what Christ has done for us in his atoning death and his body on the tree, all the vandalism and the looting and the destruction that we had wrought by our sin, the heavens and the earth were ripped apart when he was crucified because the one who was Shalom itself, the Prince of Peace, became our curse and sin, and he broke the back of our vandalism in his body on the tree. Upon him, Isaiah tells us, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And he was resurrected the third day, defeating death. And he has promised that one day he will return and establish everlasting shalom on this earth. And that's what Isaiah promises. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And by the way, in case you thought that we were responsible for bringing about this peace, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And he gives us a picture of it later in Isaiah 55, verses 12 and 13. He says, In that day you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. For those who have been given the peace of God through the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus our Lord, there will come a day when He returns <laughs> and ushers us in to the everlasting shalom, the kingdom of peace and rest. And it is for this kingdom that we are taught 
in the Advent season to long and to hope. Now let me try to apply this. Now that we're in the Advent season, we find ourselves longing for that peace. What are we to do with this? I think we must learn to wait. Notice what Paul says in the rest of Romans chapter 5, that passage we just read, in which he begins by affirming that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. He says, because of this, we have also obtained access by faith into the hope excuse me, into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice now in the hope of the glory of God. And what is hope but longing? It is unfulfilled desire. And now that we have the peace of God through Jesus Christ, the gift that he gives us is unfulfilled desire. Hope. We both possess peace and we long for peace both at the same time in the first advent peace was promised and it is not until the second advent that peace true true shalom will be fulfilled and so the goal of this season is not to deliver the fulfillment of peace for which we long but to deliver the longing itself. The unfulfilled desire for the second advent of the Lord. And so every year around this time, we hear those same kinds of longings. I just want to get all my shopping done so that I can rest this season. So I can have peace this season. And it doesn't matter if you get your shopping done in January we will still feel harried and hurried and disappointed that we could not fully inhabit the peace for which we long. Now, I know that shopping seems very trivial in light of all that I've just said, but that triviality is actually the outside door to a great and cavernous desire. You step through it and you will find all the longings of the human heart. We thought we could arrange for peace and rest in our lives, but we couldn't get it. We couldn't get it. And so I think we can do three things in light of all this. First, the best we can do here and now in this season of Advent that is upon us is to find our rest in the peace given to us by the atonement of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is no easy thing. We have been schooled all our lives to seek our peace and rest by arranging for it ourselves. Don't forget in the rush of this season that it is no small thing that we have peace with God. It could have been otherwise. He could have left us languishing in our sin. He could have left us in the broken down neighborhood in which the vandalism of shalom oppresses us at every turn. But as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord has shown compassion to us. He has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Thanks be to God. The second thing I think we can do is to allow our frantic hurrying I'm too much of a realist to say 
stop it. No, I'm not stopping. None of us is going to stop it. I mean, it's going to happen. But allow our frantic hurrying this season to remind us of the feebleness of peace the way the world gives it. And maybe, just maybe, we will find ourselves repenting of the demands that we make on our worlds and our people to provide us with peace. They cannot do it. We have loaded this season, our people, the, the movies we watch, we, we've loaded the whole thing with more existential freight than it could ever deliver. They simply cannot carry it. And as is my custom, it's time for a quote from the Puritans. <laughs> this, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. This time it's John Flavel. He says this, We rejoice, says the apostle, in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. This is the true temper of a believing soul. Take heed that you do not live partly upon Christ and partly upon the creature for your comfort. If you make any creature the fountain of your comfort, assuredly God will dry up that spring. If your souls draw their comfort from any creature, you know your soul must outlive that creature, and then what will you do for your comfort? Besides, as your comforts are, so are you. The food of every creature is suitable to its nature. Sensual men feed upon sensual things. Spiritual men upon spiritual things. As your food is, so are you. If carnal comforts can content your heart, it must then be a very carnal heart. Yes. And let Christians themselves take heed that they draw not their consolations from themselves instead of Christ. Your graces, listen, listen, your graces and duties are excellent means, but not the foundation of your comfort. They are useful buckets to draw with, but not the well itself in which the springs of consolation rise. Yes. The season of Advent is a useful bucket by which we can reach deep into the well of peace which Christ has given us. But let this be the year that we learn the season and our celebration of it is not the spring from which our consolation rises. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying don't celebrate it. Celebrate. Do all this stuff. Watch the movies, the popcorn, the, the trees, and the lights. Do it all. That's great. But just know it's a bucket. It's a bucket. Not the springs. And the third thing I think we can do is learn to love the sickness of unfulfilled desire. It is an acquired taste. It is a learned love. And I know of no better time to learn it than this season right here. Our expectations are through the roof. And no one has taught me more about this than C.S. Lewis. And in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he's talking about being a child and reading the Beatrix Potter books and how they awakened in him this great longing, especially the one called Squirrel Nutkin. And he said that each of these books awakened a longing in him, but none more than, I'm just anticipating it, Whew. none more than Squirrel Nutkin. I wasn't going to cry at Squirrel Nutkin. Um, 
It's an unfortunate place. Um, he said that when he read this book, it troubled him. Here's what he says. It troubled me. It troubled me with what I can only describe as the idea of autumn. It sounds fantastic to say that one can be enamored of a season, but that is something like what happened. And as before, the experience was one of intense desire. And listen. And one went back to the book, not to gratify the desire. That was impossible. How can one possess autumn? But to reawake it. Each year, we return to Advent, not to satisfy the ache, but to reawaken it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that as long as we exist in this tent of a body that we have, we long, we groan for our heavenly dwellings. And if we learn to inhabit this longing, to put ourselves into that posture, instead of frantically trying to stuff all the trappings of the season into it so that it will quiet down, then we will find ourselves becoming those kinds of people who hope for the glory of God. We will find ourselves looking toward the horizon in our darkest nights and saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. If you don't find your world as you wish it to be again this year, be at peace. That means it wasn't meant to happen this year. But if you find yourself disappointed and sick with longing, and the things on earth that you crammed into that longing did not satisfy it at all, then find your rest in knowing that the longing is the point. It is the sickness that is better than any cure we can find. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, I don't know what to say. We give you thanks for these words. We give you thanks that you have delivered faith into our hearts. We give you thanks that now we get to sit together at your table, feasting upon the peace of Christ that he has given us. So we pray that you would help us to inhabit that peace even more as we come to the table. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, this meal is not meant to satisfy hunger. This meal is meant to awaken hunger. And so, as you come, let it be a reminder that the peace of Christ is available to all who have believed in him and is saving death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins. If that's you, this is your meal. Come and enter and inhabit the peace of Christ, the, the rightness with God that he has given you by his own death and resurrection. But if that's not you, if, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, well, then believe. He, he holds out this invitation to you too. And if you want to join us here, and experience the peace of Christ at this table, there is no price for admission. He is awakening you now. 
And the reason why he brought you here, the reason why he's awakening you is so that you can join us at this table, believing that he is enough, that the Prince of Peace has delivered you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ.